off the top tonight, though, we're going to focus on something and it seems like we have kind of zeroed on in, the, in, in on this a, a little bit lately, and that is your pocketbook. Last night, we talked about home purchasing and uh, how unattainable uh, home ownership has become for many. Well, one of the other major purchases that most of us are going to be faced with at some point in our lives is a new vehicle, a car, a pickup truck. And if you haven't noticed, they're not getting any cheaper either. In fact, if you haven't been in the market for a couple of years, uh, you may be shocked. I kind of was today. We're joined by Jody Lina, who is editor-in-chief of Auto Trader. Jody, welcome to the program. Hey, Sid. Thanks for having me. Um, I I was taken aback today when uh, when I saw that the is this true I'm and I'm sure it is the average price of a new car in this country is now more than sixty six thousand dollars. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that comes from Auto Trader's price index, in which we kind of crunch all of the the listing numbers on the Auto Trader marketplace. And it's kind of a misconception that Auto Trader only has used cars, but we do tons of new car new cars as well. Um, and so, yeah, that 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 number is uh, it's shocking, but it is true. <laughs> and so that means that there will be some that are less than that, but it means there will be many that are that are way more than that. And it doesn't I don't think it would come as a surprise to people to know that there are, you know, luxury vehicles out there that are 70, 80, 90 and, and in some cases into the into the six figures. But that that average of 66, at least to me, did come as a surprise. So how did we get here? That's a great question. So, so it's interesting also that that average price you're seeing of the 66 grand, that's a 21.3% year over year increase over last year. And it's very rare for us to see those double digit, uh, that double digit growth. And so there's a couple reasons why we're seeing these higher car prices. Um, so the price index reveals that, you know, strong consumer demand combined with lower than usual inventory levels are still affecting pricing. So, you know, with low supply and high demand, prices usually go up. Like, that's classic economics. Mm -hmm. Um, So recovery from pandemic-related shortages is still underway. I think that's maybe one of the biggest factors that are affecting car prices right now. Um, And there's some other ones, too, that, you know, a lot of people aren't really talking about stuff like vehicle upsizing. So our research shows that consumers want bigger vehicles, bigger SUVs and trucks. Um, and so that means a lot of the smaller, cheaper cars are getting discontinued as, you know, consumer preferences shift to larger vehicles. And with those cheaper cars going away, that pushes the average prices up. Um, so just as an example, you know, small, affordable cars like the Honda Fit and the Nissan Micra, mm-hmm. that you can't buy them anymore. So they've been replaced by more expensive crossovers that are really the same size, um, like the Honda HRV and the Nissan Kicks. But because they're SUVs, um, you know, some drivers feel like they're, they can see higher up in the road. Maybe they feel safer. Maybe it comes with all-wheel drive. And those extra features, you know, cost money. Uh, now, you're close enough to this that, that maybe nothing surprises you. But, and I know things can be cyclical. You can go all the way back to, I don't know, is that this? 70s or when when the uh, the gas shortages were and was it the Volkswagen Rabbit that all of a sudden became popular and we were told that you know the days of pickup trucks were gone uh, and then that ended and they came back but uh, I mean I'm a little bit surprised in that with people seemingly driving less because more people are, are working from home and working remotely the, the the cost of everything has gone up including gas uh, mm-hmm. concerns for the environment that I would almost. I guess I would have guessed, and it only would have been a guess, and I would have been wrong, that people would be going the other way and getting into smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles. I mean, you're, you're 
we're kind of onto something there. And so people are looking for more fuel-efficient vehicles. Um, and so there are a lot more EVs on the marketplace now than there was a year ago. And EVs are still much more expensive than conventional gas-powered vehicles, you know, because batteries are expensive. You know, we haven't reached that, like, mass manufacturing of EVs yet. And that's pushing the prices up as well. But something interesting that we noticed in our pricing data is that the vehicles that are increasing the most in price are cars and not SUVs or trucks. So if we're going to drill down to the data a little bit, um, the prices for cars, so that means like sedans and hatchbacks and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. they're up 39.6% year over year, whereas truck pricing... That's right. Yeah. And truck pricing is only up 7% year over year. So it's because people are flocking to more economical, you know, more fuel efficient, smaller vehicles. And there's smaller, sorry, there's less supply of them because so many of them have been discontinued. And that's driving up the prices of what's left. And are these prices uh, or the increases in prices, are they relatively uniform across the country or are some provinces feeling the bite a little bit more than others? That's a great question. I don't have the data for that in front of us right now, but I can probably report back to you on that. (laughs) Sure. Um, And the other thing that I'm curious about, and I know uh, just a personal story, like I guess it's a couple of years ago now, I thought I might want a snowmobile, couldn't get any anywhere that were new, (laughs) Uh, found like one used one at a dealer, one literally in the entire province. And they were asking, and they were asking because they knew they would get it. They didn't get it from me, but they were, it was asking like $4,000 more than list price for a new one. And this one was about three years old. Um, are used cars and trucks still uh, holding their value because of the uh, the demand on newer vehicles as well? Are the prices high there too? Yeah, uh, the the pricing that shows that the the prices for used vehicles are still higher than like pre-pandemic levels, but we haven't seen um, the level of increases we have for new cars. So just as an example, the average used vehicle price for a car was 37572 which represents an 8.7% increase year over year. Yeah, and I guess that was hard to judge. That we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's still, I guess, hard to judge when you're just averaging used vehicles because that's such a wide spectrum of what might be out there and how old they might be and what kind of mileage or, or they might have. So I, I, it seems that might be a little bit harder to uh, to kind of say, okay, that that seems reasonable or that seems really high. Although certainly it is uh, higher than what uh, what it was a few years ago. So is there any what what needs to be done? Do you think to kind of moderate these prices? Uh, or are they going to moderate in the near future? It's tough to answer that because there's so many different variables at play, right? And so I think as long as the demand remains as strong as it is now and, and inventory is still trying to catch up to that, I think the prices are, are always going to increase with that demand, right? They're going to stay consistent. And I, I don't think the data shows right now that we're going to be going back to pre-pandemic pricing for cars uh, anytime soon. Right. And the other thing, I guess, that, that is one of the unknowns is, and I know that there were some economists when inflation really started ramping up, I guess, 18 months, two years ago. Maybe it's longer than that now. It just seems it's been going on almost forever. Uh, and they were saying, well, don't, don't forget that when 
inflation begins to moderate, it's not like the prices are going to roll back to where they were before. They'll just stop increasing. So it may not be that, you know, for things like new vehicles, uh, they go back to where they were pre-pandemic. They just might stop increasing at the rate they are right now, which is a bit of a scary thing for people that might be looking at a purchase, particularly now with most people financing uh, new vehicles and the cost of financing going up as well. Yeah, that's right. I think my advice for for people shopping for a new car right now is is not to buy more vehicle than they need. You know, a lot of people want these big cars and big trucks, but they don't really use them the way they were meant to be used, right? So I always caution people not to buy more car than they need and to kind of stay away from those huge loan terms. Well, and you're right about buying more car than you need. I think there there are a lot of we see you see big trucks on the road, you see big SUVs on the road that are built to go off road and never do. But again, people are going to buy what they feel comfortable in. What they you know, it's a big purchase, so they're going to they're going to want to drive something that they're they feel good in, they're proud of, they like the looks of, they like the performance of, and uh, it's you know, I, I guess to most people, it's not up to someone else to judge whether that's the right car for them or not. They're just going to buy what they want. And and that's going to keep driving these prices for some of these classes of vehicles. Yeah. I mean, if people can afford what they want to, then then that's great, right? You know, there's hundreds, there's still hundreds of thousands of new and used vehicles on the auto trader marketplace. Um, and if people are worried about pricing, auto trader actually is a really great tool it's called price badging so it shows you it uses all of the listing data and kind of crunches it in real time and will tell you if a price you see in a listing is good fair or even above average and so it i think it helps people maybe feel more confident that they're getting a good deal well, it certainly is uh, interesting. I mentioned off the top that last night we were talking about the, the price of uh, and, the, and the relative unaffordability. And, and, and for some people, particularly young people now just entering the housing market, how, uh, you know, a lot of people are almost giving up hope and thinking of home ownership as unattainable. Now, a car may not be unattainable for those same people because there is a used option. Uh, but whether it's used or new, uh, prices are certainly uh, don't look like they're going to be cooling off anytime soon. Jody, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Sid. Have a nice night. It is Wednesday on the program, which means it's time for Journal Corner. It's an opportunity on a little more conversation every week to spotlight uh, some really great reporting. And, and this this certainly qualifies. We're joined on the program by Camio Rizavi of GlobalNews.ca. Cam, welcome to the program. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. Uh, boy, I, I, I logged on this morning, and, and the first thing that hit me was the headline exclusive. The feds bought a pipeline for $5 billion. How did the cost balloon to over $30 billion? Uh, it's, it's great reporting, and uh, we're going to kind of walk our way through this because I think a lot of Canadians are probably familiar, I guess, with the origins of the story, with uh, Kinder Morgan kind of backing away from Trans Mountain, the federal government coming in to purchase it. And then since then, probably a lot of people, I'm sure, I mean, some people might follow it closely, but a lot of people have maybe lost track of it. So uh, that's the headline. The Fed's buy a pipeline for $5 billion. The cost seemingly has ballooned to over $30 billion. So we'll start with the obvious first question is, how did this happen? Yeah, well, that's the that's the big question. So as you say, I mean, uh, just to re- uh, remind uh, listeners, in 2018, that's when Ottawa purchased uh, the pipeline project from a Texas-based energy giant called Kinder Morgan. At the time, the purchase price, the sticker price, was $4.7 billion with a B dollars. Uh, and since then, uh, that cost has 
uh, grown sixfold to its current 31, uh, almost $31 billion. So how did it happen? Well, if you look at the numbers carefully, it was a massive underestimation of how much it would cost to build a pipeline through some of the most challenging terrain anywhere for pipeline construction. And from the beginning, Trans Mountain uh, significantly undershot exactly how much it would cost to um, lay down pipes through the treacherous mountains of interior British Columbia, uh, how much it would cost to uh, acquire land uh, through the pipeline's uh, route, especially in the Fraser Valley, um, and also underestimated how much it would cost to uh, consult and seek accommodation with the 120-plus First Nations uh, that are along the pipeline's route. So one underestimation after another uh, for a pipeline project that was never going to cost $5 billion. Well, and, and so let's kind of maybe we'll, we'll walk back and kind of go through this uh, a little bit piece by piece. And so the first sure. the first thing that jumps out at me as you're explaining this is, yes, we know if you're going over and around and, I don't know, in case, some cases maybe through portions of mountains, that's really difficult terrain to do anything, let alone to kind of lay uh, a large pipeline through. But they must have known that, even for a government, to spend $5 billion, $4.7 billion, whatever the exact amount was at the time, uh, due diligence would demand that you would know what you're getting into, would it not? Oh, absolutely. And uh, there's two points on that. First of all, the um, former CEO of uh, Kinder Morgan, the company that sold the project to the federal government, uh, Ian Anderson is his name, way back in 2013, uh, while the um, National Energy Board, it's since the Canada Energy Regulator, but the federal regulator, uh, he told a hearing during the approval process of the project that this pipeline goes through some really challenging terrain. So as early as 2013, everybody knew that the, the terrain was extremely difficult. And not only that, but um, this pipeline project, uh, as many of your listeners will know, will twin an existing pipeline that was built way back in the 1950s. So there was no surprise with respect to, or there should have been no surprise with respect to the train. And at least two engineers that I spoke with pointed out that the whole point of engineering studies and technical studies is to minimize these kinds of surprises. So when you're building a project like this, it's imperative to have a good picture of exactly what kind of soil you're dealing with, what kind of slope you're dealing with, uh, what kind of forest cover. You know, it's not as simple as digging a trench through the prairies and just laying down pipe. So none of this, with respect to the terrain at least, should have come as a surprise to anyone. You wouldn't have thought so. And and in your story, and again, you can read this story at globalnews.ca, the headline, the Fed's bought a pipeline for $5 billion. How did the cost balloon to over $30 billion? Uh, you kind of uh, uh, paint the picture of some of a different way that uh, the pipeline is being laid, where I guess in a traditional sense, you, you, dig a, you dig a trench, you put the pipe in, and then you connect the pipe. But there, in some stretches... Uh, doing it a little bit differently, and that may be leading to some of these cost overruns. Yeah, that's right. So, um, for example, last year, uh, November 2022, they, Trans Mountain spent uh, close to $900 million on construction for one month alone. Construction budget, by the way, for the entirety of last year was about $9 billion, double the estimate of $5.3 billion with a B. And one of the reasons was, um, as you say, they found out or discovered uh, late in the game that uh, specialized techniques were going to be required to lay pipe in some of the more challenging stretches. 
one of those techniques uh, is called industry jargon is called stove piping. So that basically means that you weld big pieces of pipe together and then you lay them down on usually steep terrain in one go. Now this technique is much more expensive than digging a trench in flat on flat land and laying a pipe down 10 times more expensive and trans mountain uh, discovered in the last series of this explains the last series of cost overruns that they needed to do this stove piping method for 13% of the route. So that potentially explains much of the most recent cost increase from 21.4 to um, 30.9. Uh, and there's some, in your, in your story, you detail uh, some of the uh, cost overruns being attributed to engineering, which I think for any, uh, I guess, project of this magnitude and this scale, engineering costs. And I, I guess, first of all, I would say most people would expect that any project of this magnitude, there would be some cost overruns. I think most people just wouldn't expect that it would go from $5 billion to, to $30 billion. But the other thing that you detail in your story that uh, I guess Trans Mountain is chalking some of this up to, something called plan maturity. What is that? Yeah, that's a that's that's a bit of a mystery term. I've I've spoken with at least three experts to try to explain what this means. Basically, the short answer it means it means that having all of the information that's required to complete your plans. So, in plain English, it means that Trans Mountain was discovering late in the game that it needed to change some of its methods to get the job done. So, for example using the stove piping methodology that late in the game um, to complete parts of the project that are in really challenging terrain. It also is reflective, according to uh, at least two experts I spoke with, that the pipeline was not planned and mapped out from the beginning in the way that it should have been there in the cost overruns. And you're right, Sid, uh, we expect a twofold increase. We expect a threefold increase, a sixfold increase. Um, that's, that's very unusual. And the other point I'll make about this is that now, because the cost overruns are so great and the project is uh, saddled with anywhere from 16 to $20 billion in debt, Trans Mountain needs to charge the oil companies uh, fees or tolls to use the new pipeline. And some of the oil companies, the shippers, um, are already uh, telling the Canadian energy regulator that those tolls are too high which is kind of interesting because they're the ones that wanted the project in the first place. And so now there's a bit of a back and forth between some of Canada's most profitable and biggest energy companies and Trans Mountain, by extension, the Canadian government, over the costs that they have to pay in order to use the pipeline. So that's a bit ironic. I do want to talk uh, about, and we touched on it, I guess, just before the break, about the uh, how the costs can be, recouped or at least part of them and if they're not who ends up paying for it but one of the other things and we know uh, pipelines and these kinds of projects are inherently political you have federal jurisdictions you have negotiations with provinces and you also have indigenous communities that need to be uh, taken into account and and accommodated and that's another area it seems where uh, the initial estimate uh, was way under what it ended up costing. Yeah, that's right, Sid. I mean, there's there's so much politics around this at the federal level, provincial level, and also with First Nations communities. There are over 120 nations along the pipeline's route. Trans Mountain uh, had estimated that the cost of seeking consultation and accommodation with these nations would be around $99 million. 
the final cost, according to the Crown Corporation that owns the pipeline in its most recent update, is $900 million. So that's almost 10 times increase, which makes sense because uh, not every community wants a pipeline in its backyard. And there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of meeting with people, negotiating, coming up with contracts. So that is another area or line item where Transboundin significantly underestimated the cost of the work. Um, so that's how you have, uh, you know, a cost that goes 99 to 900 tenfold increase contributes to that overall number, which you mentioned, 4.7 billion to 31 billion now. And, and by the way, do we know have all of those negotiations been put to bed? Is is, is uh, have, have agreements been been signed and everything's a go, or is that still an ongoing process? Uh, well, the, the, most of them are. There are a few nations that have um, outstanding grievances with Trans Mountain some with respect to the new line, some with respect to the existing line, um, some with respect to the routing. Uh, there was one nation near Merritt that was opposed to the line being constructed net close to their aquifer. That's been resolved. But there's some other issues involving the Tsleil-Waututh Nation across from the terminal where the oil will be shipped from. So, no, um, uh, there are outstanding issues still with uh, some of the nations. Okay, and so when, and, 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 and we'll say when, not if, but when this is built, uh, and the whole purpose is to get oil from, I guess, from the oil uh, fields, basically the pipeline from Edmonton to, does it end in Burnaby? That's right. It ends in Burnaby. It's over 1,000 kilometers, the, the new line, and it, it mirrors the, the, the line that's already there. It's been there since the 1950s. And to be clear, this pipeline will open up Canada's landlocked energy resources to new markets. This was the entire rationale for building this line, because right now our oil from the oil sands in Alberta can only go in one direction, and that's south on the existing Enbridge system to the U.S. Gulf Coast and then out to a, on a tanker to Asian markets. Um, the challenge here is that this pipeline is so overrun in terms of cost that Transmountain will have to charge the shippers a particular set of tolls and the tolls are already being grieved by the energy companies as too high. So if the tolls stay where they are, or if they go up even more, it could really undermine the entire purpose of this pipeline, which was to create a competitive alternative to the Enbridge line. At the end of the day, depending on what the final bill is, Trans Mountain may not be that much of a competitive advantage to the existing pipeline system. And that undermines the entire rationale for the federal government to buy this in the first place. And so I guess there's a couple of ways something like this can go. They can either negotiate higher fees to try and recoup the costs, or they can say, okay, it was our problem that the cost overruns were so great. We'll let you use the pipeline, let you ship the oil for what we had previously agreed to or kind of within that range, which means there's going to be potentially billions of dollars out there that aren't covered by this. And if it's not, what then? Do we know? That, that's, the, that's the part of the pun, the million-dollar question. So um, already, as I mentioned, you have the energy companies uh, grieving to the uh, Canada energy regulator that the tolls that Transmountain wants to charge are too high. So I really have a hard time seeing the pipeline company jacking up the tolls even more, which begs the question, how much money is going to be left on the balance sheet? How much debt? And the estimate right now is anywhere from 16 to $20 billion dollars. So what could happen if there's that much debt on the balance sheet? Well, the federal government could come in and write off that debt, in which case Canadian taxpayers will be left on the hook 
for a massive cost overrun to the tune of somewhere between 16 and 20 billion dollars, if not more, depending on how much Trans Mountain wants to spend is going to spend in 2023 to complete the project. The other uh, thing that might happen, and this is uh, what's being discussed, is that the company and the feds, by extension, will sell this to a private consortium. Private uh, consortium will take it over. But again, I find it difficult that any private buyer would buy a project that has that much red ink on the balance sheet. So it's very likely at the end of the day that the federal government will have to take a multi-billion dollar write down on this project. And by extension, the taxpayer will have to eat that cost. Uh, and uh, were you able to find out in any of your reporting, have any of the people that, that made these decisions, that made these estimates, that that, uh, that got this underway, and, and this is ballooned so far uh, out of control and over budget, is everybody still in place? Has anybody lost their job over this? There have been some shakeups at the corporate level at Trans Mountain. Whether it's because of the cost overruns, it's hard to say. Um, I can't specifically say that it was because of the the Mm -hmm. massive under budgeting, but there have been some shakeups. But the point here is that Trans Mountain's corporate structure, the entire corporate structure of this project is very opaque. So you have a crown corporation that oversees and owns the entire thing. And then you have at least two entities below that Trans Mountain related to Trans Mountain that are responsible for the construction and the sort of overlord of all of this. The overseer is the federal government. So it's very difficult to to kind of find out exactly what's going on. And even the numbers that are in my story, it's not like those numbers were uh, provided on some press release. You have to go onto the energy regulator's website and meticulously look through hundreds of corporate filings submitted there. It's all publicly available, but you have to know where to look and how to look and sort of piece together the story because Trans Mountain certainly didn't put any dollar figures on some of these expenditures. So um, to answer your question, uh, it's, it's very murky, and um, it remains to be seen exactly where the chips will fall when this is all said and done. Well, one thing we do know, it's great reporting, and we really appreciate you sharing it with us tonight. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Sid. Thank you. Now, here's one that as Canadians, I think we may all have some opinion on. Uh, you may have... Uh, come across this story over the last little bit, a recent review conducted by the University of Ottawa is calling on Hockey Canada to reconsider the age at which kids are introduced to body contact in hockey from 13 to 15. And we're joined now by Dr. Christian Goulet, who's a pediatrician at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Medicine to kind of walk us uh, through this, uh, this research and this recommendation. Dr. Goulet, thanks for coming on the show tonight. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, now, you probably knew when you, when you went down this road, uh, I mean, it is Canada, people are going to have lots of opinions on this sort of thing, right? We'll get into the science and, 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 and where we're at with it, but this is, and has been, it seems at times, a, a kind of a hot-button issue in this country. Oh, gee, who would have thought, uh, you know, <laughs> hockey, hockey being so, so hotly debated in this country, eh? Uh, and there were even, we'll get into it, there were even some NHL players that had opinions on it. Again, not unexpectedly, because it is Canada and it is hockey. So where did this recommendation come from? I don't want to diminish the work that you've done, because I know this is probably a lengthy process. You look at a whole bunch of different factors. But how do you come to this conclusion? Yeah, so it, it started about two or three years ago, uh, where it was actually, it was spearheaded by the Canadian Pediatric Society, who's 
kind of like the godfathers of, of health for kids in this country. And they, they approached me and, and they said, well, it's been about 10 years or so since we've you know, put out some sort of statement on, on concussions and anybody that's you know, following concussion world and all that uh, new information is coming out, you know, weekly. And, and so they tasked me with, you know, you know, reviewing the literature on concussions. And then also about, yeah, about 12, 13 years ago, they had rec- made a recommendation at that time to move body checking from 11 to 12 to 13 or 14, um, to 13 or 14. And um, so they wanted to kind of see what, what happened with that recommendation and, and uh, to see if it needed to be updated. So, yeah, about three years ago, they, uh, I started kind of doing the literature on this and they said, yeah, give us a document about 3,500 words. And then uh, a year later or so, I, I gave them something about 15,000 words. And uh, so then we, we spent the last year kind of whittling it down. Um, and it was interesting because last, last few years, um, we've been able to kind of study, you know, the effect that that policy change made that we made years ago. We were able to see, all right, well, we did move the body contact, kudos to Hockey Canada for that, to 13. So what did that really mean? And, you know, looking at the literature, it, it, it really showed like you could decrease concussion risk by 20 to 90 percent you could you know decrease other uh, other muscle skeletal injuries by three to four times so the evidence was was quite striking um and it also allowed us to, to answer a lot of questions so i'll say two maybe 15 20 years ago um when my hair was a little bit less gray uh you know i thought too like yeah you teach these kids to hit early and and you're going to decrease injuries in the long run and I, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. I think the, the beautiful thing about science is it, it does tackle these these tough questions, right? Like everybody has opinions, and we all have to kind of take a step back and say, all right, well, this is opinion. This is the way that we've done it for so long. But are we really doing the right thing? And then when you look at the numbers, when you look at body checking and and what you know what happens when you introduce body checking to injury rates, you know, it, it's it's no no longer in question. So. It uh, it was definitely you know a, a polarizing topic, isn't it? That uh, you're either on either side of the aisle, and you know I just like to say you know the Canadian Pediatric Society we 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 value sports you know so highly that you know it's so important for you know mental health and and physical health and social health and and so we want people to participate in, in sports, but just kind of as the adults in the room, we have to you know literature you know listen to the literature and 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 follow and and it's not you know letting our biases or our preconceived notions determine policy it's like what does the literature say and we have to be you know humble enough to to follow the recommendations well it, it certainly is interesting and, and you talked a little bit about how it's evolved uh, just in recent years but there would be a lot of people listening to us tonight that go back to when they played minor hockey and there was no there was no age per se at which body checking was introduced it was just part of the game and some kids might mm-hmm. do it a little bit more earlier and some might just come to it a little bit later and then eventually it was uh, it was brought in i think we had some uh, kids going through minor hockey and i think at that time i lose track of the exact ages that coincide with you know adam peewee or bantam but i think at the time our kids were going through it was uh, peewee age now we have a nephew that's taking a body checking camp i think at the age of you know going into bantam i guess which would be 13 so it has evolved slightly yeah. and yeah. how how significant would moving it up by another couple of years be in terms of preventing those injuries well un- unbelievable and so i mean a couple of things too just to you know for the record is that we're not saying that you know you, you can't be teaching educating for is just 
just the limiting the like the body checking within the gameplay. That's where the injuries happen. But in a controlled environment where you're teaching how to give a check and how to receive a check, I think that's a valuable skill to be learned. It's just limiting those high impact in game um, in game collisions that that you know really cause those big injuries. And our guest is Dr. Christian Goulet, pediatrician, University of Ottawa Faculty of Medicine, uh, one of the authors of the recent review. Uh, conducted by the University of Ottawa, which is calling on Hockey Canada to uh, reconsider the age at which kids are introduced to body contact in hockey from 13 to 15. And as we were uh, chatting before the break, this is not something that uh, we just thrown together. Uh, this was a, a long time in the making. There were a lot of uh, lot of injuries studied, and and not and not just head injuries. Uh, there are other injuries, doctor, that you're saying arise from introducing body contact at too young of an age for these kids. Absolutely. I think, you know, concussions have, you know, quite, quite reasonably, I think I've got a lot of attention lately just because of the, you know, the, you know, the effect that concussions have been having on kids, but uh, you know, that's just one part of it, you know, as a, I'm a sports medicine physician as well. And so I see a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, you know, the shoulder separations and clavicle fractures and, and uh, you know, so there's a lot of, lot of injuries other than, you know, other than concussions that need to be considered when, when uh, making a decision like this. So if body contact is introduced or body checking is introduced, uh, say at, at 15 rather than 13, um, will the 15-year-olds get fewer injuries or is this a case where you just know it's going to be introduced at some point so that's, it's better to delay it? Yeah, so great, great question. And it, it's like any sort of kind of suboptimal exposure, whether it's alcohol drinking or, you know, toxins, the the later you can delay or the longer you can delay exposure to something. So in this case, uh, the longer you can delay, you know, getting concussions, the better kids are going to be off. And and one of the other arguments is that was made, and, and again, I did, wasn't uh, aware of what the data would show, but when you looked at the numbers that, you know, when, when body contact is, body checking is reintroduced later, you don't get this huge spike of injuries um, that was, you know, that some people are, are saying is going to happen. If you look at the literature, that's, that's just not the case. You don't get this huge spike. And in fact, it's, it's the obvious, it's the, sorry, it's the, um, it's the opposite is that when these kids, they get bigger and stronger, yes, but they have, you know, more resiliency in terms of their their physicality so um delaying it really there's there's very few downsides to it other than you know it's it's bucking the the status quo did that surprise you at all that um that introducing it a little bit later when the kids are bigger and stronger uh that they weren't suffering more injuries Absolutely. And I think it's so I'm a bit of an interesting story in that uh, I grew up in a hockey family. So my father was a a hockey coach by profession, Um, of course, university level and he coached in the Olympics. And, you know, I played junior hockey as well, too. And I was, you know, never a great player, but, you know, recruited to play university hockey. So, you know, I kind of get both both sides of the story. And and so it gives a, a little bit of a unique perspective. But, you know, definitely I was I was shocked. Um, when you're, you know, seeing the, the, the literature come out, I think we all grew up in, in a time where, yeah, we would have, you know, contact in Wee, and, you know, I probably had 10 concussions or so, uh, in my career and, and yeah, somewhere between rugby and, and soccer and hockey, all the sports that I did. Yeah. I've had 
quite a number, but it was it was different and a uh, different time. But uh, I, I think that you know concussions now they're they're different, right? And I tell patients and and doctors and whoever also listen that uh, you know that I work at the University of Ottawa Brain and Mind Research Institute, and and I think it's an important distinction that needs to be made that between the brain and the mind, with the brain being the hardware and, and the mind being the software, and not only when, like when you had a head trauma, not only do you have a brain injury, but the mind is significantly impacted and it's a trauma. And so with these rising rates of, of mental health issues, um, any sort of trauma thrown into the mix can have huge ramifications on, you know, kids quality of life, um, you know, mentally and neurologically. Now, I think most larger communities and maybe smaller communities as well do have, and have, uh, I think for several years, they have, I guess a recreational stream of hockey where there's no body contact right up through what we used to call midget. I think we call that U18 now. And then you mm-hmm. might have another track where people, uh, the kids are taking it maybe a little bit more seriously and they might at some point feel that they're on the track to, to play junior, to play major junior, maybe to get a scholarship and go to college. And, yeah. you know, and it's a very small percentage, but th- there would be a few uh, that would go on to play professional hockey. Would you make any sort of a distinction or how would administrations even kind of deal with that and and say, well, this stream, it's okay for body contact and this stream, it's not simply because of what their aspirations might be? Yeah, no, it's great, great point. So another aspect of the the paper that we wrote was it examined, you know, the kind of the necessity and, and the consequence of body checking in what we would deem as the quote unquote non-competitive leagues, right? So the house league teams, essentially. Um, and Canada is unique in that Hockey Canada is kind of the governing body, but there is some, you know, provincial um, uh, influence in terms of uh policy and so places like Ontario they don't have they don't have body checking in house league and uh, other places like Alberta that they do and so uh, other sites and some great researchers Canadian uh, researchers Dr. Emery's absolutely a, a superstar in this field um, has pioneered a lot of studies on this and uh, uh, and it's all quoted in our study, in our paper. Um, but really, when you take body checking out of house lead, um, again, significant rates of injury, you know, you see significant declines in injury rates and concussions. So it, it's another topic that we had touched on. And again, you have to ask yourself, you know, does body checking, what does it really add, you know, to, uh, to kids that might not have those, those great aspirations? Um, but to your other point too, I, I think, you know, having the goals and, and, you know, whether it's playing professional hockey or, you know, getting the scholarship, I think, you know, you do have to kind of balance that with, all right, you know, how many kids do actually get, go on to get yeah. their scholarships. And, you know, we know the stats about how many minor hockey players are going to play, you know, in the NHL, I think it's 0.03% or something like that. So, I mean, that, that is something. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's, we have, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of vested interest in trying to get kids, you know, whether it's getting the scholarship or making a living out of it, there's, it, it's big business. And so, but we still have to put the needs of, of you know, and the health of the kids uh, at the forefront. Dr. Goulet, I'll stop you there. Thank you very much for your time. It's a fascinating topic. We appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. So now we're going to talk about how you save money. We talk, we've talked a lot about how much it costs to live. Uh, how can we save money? Jason Heath is Managing Director at Objective Financial 
planners. And uh, I think, Jason, first of all, thanks for coming on the program. And I think, you know, most of us at some point in our lives say, okay, it's, I can't just be day to day. I've got to sort of plan for the future. I've got to do some long-term financial planning, whether that's to save to buy a house, whether that's even to save to go on vacation, or for a lot of people, to save to hopefully be able to retire someday. And then we all feel, I need a person to help me with this. What If we're looking for help in this long-term planning with our finances, what what do we need to know before we go seeking that advice? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think that uh, the starting point probably needs to be what type of professional are you looking for? So somebody um, might be looking for somebody to manage their investments, for example, and you want to make sure you're talking to somebody who has the... um, appropriate investment licensing to be able to help you. Different types of financial advisors are licensed to offer or sell different investments. So some investment advisors, for example, can offer mutual funds, um, but not exchange traded funds or stocks. Um, Others have other restrictions. Some people might be looking for retirement planning advice. And in that case, a financial planner may be better suited. Other people, it might be more tax advice where where an accountant or an accounting professional is is better suited. So I think the the first thing is who's the right professional to be talking to for your your specific situation. And you just went through a whole lot of stuff there that uh, uh, I'm wondering, can one person do it all? Well, you know, it, it depends. I would say I, I'm biased. I'm a, a financial planner, but I would say that financial planners tend to have experience in a number of different areas, ranging from investments to insurance to tax to estate planning, um, but but not necessarily. And I think that's one of the challenges right now in the marketplace uh, for consumers where you know, somebody might call themselves a financial planner or a financial advisor or a wealth manager or some other, you know, descriptor that makes it kind of vague and difficult uh, to tell exactly what uh, what they do. And I'll tell you, when I'm at a, at a, you know, barbecue or a cocktail party or something like that, and somebody asks me what I do, I always kind of... I almost don't want to say, because as soon as I say I'm a financial planner, like, oh, guy's going to try to sell me an insurance policy or something, right? So consumers don't know. Well, it's interesting because I bet most people or certainly a lot of people listening right now at some point would have referred to their, that's my investment guy or that's my financial Mm. person. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if you ask them, like, what that means, uh, I, I bet there's a lot that wouldn't really be able to articulate it very well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so even, even myself, I'm a, I'm a certified financial planner, and the CFP designation really is um, sort of the, the primary financial planning designation in, in Canada and even you know, worldwide it's recognized. Um, but, you know, different certified financial planners have, have different areas of, of expertise. And there has been some um, movement towards uh, financial title protection across Canada. Um, You know, Quebec, frankly, is the only province that I think has done a really good job where somebody needs to have certain credentials to be able to call themselves a financial planner, for example. Um, I'm located in Ontario, and Ontario has has tried to introduce title protection, but it's been really watered down. Um, Some other provinces like New Brunswick, and I think recently Manitoba, 
have also aimed to, to do the same thing. But uh, certainly across Canada, it's, it's very difficult to, to try to figure out who you're talking to and, and what they can do and offer. And I think it's important for consumers to, to be educated and, and frankly, ask questions of the uh, advisors they're seeking advice from. And so fundamentally then, the difference between a planner and an advisor is what? Well, I would say that most financial advisors um, probably uh, sell or, or manage financial products like uh, investments or insurance. Um, some may have investment licenses. Some may have insurance licenses. Some may be able to offer both. Uh, a financial planner, um, it's more likely that they've got uh, experience and ability to help somebody with planning for their children's education or, or preparing for retirement or more comprehensive advice that goes beyond a specific investment or insurance need. But again, it's, it's hard to say because the, the titles are not very well regulated. Um, you know, the particular type of financial planning that I offer, for example, is, is what, you know, in the past would be called fee only or fee for service financial planning. Now, Myself and, and some of my colleagues have started referring to it as advice-only financial planning. We sell advice. We don't sell products. Um, but uh, it's, it's tough. Even myself, you know, I, I find it difficult to explain what I do without a bit of a, an elevator pitch. And, and that's a problem. Consumers should be able to know that they're speaking to a doctor or a lawyer or a pharmacist and know what that individual does. And, and for whatever reason, the... The regulators um, and, frankly, governments have not pushed very much to, to make it clear for, for people as it relates to their money. And, I mean, it's such an important fundamental part of, um, you know, everyone's lives. And I think long-term financial planning can be kind of intimidating for people. So if if someone is coming to you, say, for, for a first meeting and uh, they haven't had any professional help or advice in the past and they're they're looking at – uh, saving for retirement, maybe they're looking at saving for their child's education, they're hearing about RSPs and TFSAs and all the other financial instruments that are out there. What kind of questions are you asking them when you sit down for the first time? Well, I mean, certainly trying to figure out what their their goals are. For a lot of people, it's becoming financially independent and, and being able to retire at some point. Retirement and financial independence do not need to necessarily coincide you know as an example there are people who are able to retire um, because they're financially independent but they don't want to retire they want to keep working because they like what they do or they've moved on to a second career or they're self-employed and they're able to phase out or whatever but um, certainly uh, trying to determine their goals is important and, and then really delving into information about assets and liabilities and income and expenses and i find sometimes people are um, embarrassed, um, you know, ashamed. They don't feel like they've made good financial choices. And it, it can be a, a challenging uh, situation to sort of put all their cards on the table, so to speak. But, but it's important at the end of the day, you can't hide from the fact that you are where you are. And, you know, if, if you want to reach a goal, you need to have a, a starting point. And um, I always tell people it's better to know that you're not on a good trajectory um, <laughs> than just sort of stick your head in the sand and, and hope for the best. At the same time, there's a lot of people we meet who are in much better financial shape than they realize, particularly because they're not aware of 
you know, Canada Pension Plan and old age security and some of the government benefits and, and pensions available, or they can't properly estimate the tax they'll pay in retirement compared to during their working years. So, um, you know, the sooner you get started, the, the better. And, you know, again, you can't hide from your financial future, so better to face it head on. Uh, and I'm curious, and I know you do this, Jason, uh, for a living, but there are some people, obviously, that would be considered more passive investors. They're just doing it on their own, putting a little bit of money aside uh, every month, perhaps, if they're able. Is there any evidence over the years that someone that, that does it that way would do, in the long run, better or worse than someone who has someone working for them and would be considered to be actively managing their investments? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, there's been lots of, um, you know, research uh, uh, to, to show that the, the more active one is, it can sometimes have a, a negative impact. In other words, trying to time the markets and, and move in and out of stocks, for example, can sometimes have a, a negative effect on long run returns. Um, you know, there's an old expression that, that investing uh, is sort of like a bar of soap. The more you touch your investments, the smaller the bar gets. And I think there is something to be said about that. It's important to, to know what you're invested in and, and feel comfortable. But I think those who get uh, too involved in the nitty gritty or the, or the day to day, whether it's a self-directed DIY investor or um, an investment advisor that's that's doing a lot of transactions. Sometimes it can be detrimental, and you know, again, I'm I'm biased, but I think that in the long run, stocks are are going to go up, and you know, um, someone who invests for the long term should be successful. And there's more important financial decisions you can make, uh, like you know, compared to should you be in Royal Bank shares or, or BMO shares or should you move in and out of the markets? And a lot of it's just managing your income and your expenses, making sure you're saving, making sure you've got the proper insurance and will and powers of attorney in place. So, you know, there's a lot more to, to financial planning than, than investing. And, and certainly that's what us financial planners try to uh, encourage people to focus on. Are there any uh, common pitfalls or, or, or things that people uh, maybe later in their investment lives end up regretting that that uh, that you've come to to learn over the years. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote uh, an article a few years ago, I think, for the Financial Post, and there was a um, study that I referenced, and I, I remember it was called "Saving Regret." And one of the things that was done in this study is they spoke to a number of of retirees. And they asked them, um, you know, what were their saving regrets when they look back on what they did or, or didn't do during their, their working years? What was the thing that caused them to, you know, have bad financial outcomes? And it wasn't that they didn't save enough. It, it wasn't, um, you know, that they didn't uh, invest aggressively enough or they got caught in a stock market downturn. A lot of times it was um, extraordinary events that occurred in their life, like, a death of a spouse or a, a disability or, or a divorce. Um, and some of those sort of extraordinary events you can insure against. You can buy life insurance on, on a breadwinner. You can buy disability insurance to replace your income. There's no divorce insurance as far as I know. Maybe it's just being a good spouse and doing your best to stay in a relationship once you get into one. 
Um, you know, but it, it, oftentimes it was stuff like that. I don't often hear people say, oh, I wish I'd saved more. Frankly, right. I, I hear more people say, I, I wish I, you know, spent more time with my kids or I went on more vacations or I worried less about, you know, work or what other people thought about me. So, you know, don't, don't hear a lot of people in, in retirement complaining about the things that you think they would complain about. So life is short and you need to balance a little bit of living for today and, and saving for tomorrow to end up with the optimal outcome. And so, so one last one for you, Jason, as, as someone who spends their working life advising others on, on how mm-hmm. they might be better off in terms of long-term financial planning investments and those sorts of things, if you could roll back the clock to your early 20s or your late teens, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Hmm. It's it's a very good uh, question. Um, you know, if I think back in in my own life and in, in my own career, um, you know, definitely I I found that that I've at times worried too much about the the long term and and not focused enough on day to day, sort of as I alluded to before. And and frankly, it's been more in, in recent years that. Professionally and, and personally, I've I've seen people who have, you know, um, got sick or had a health issue or, or died at a young age, and and you know, I spend most of my career helping people make sure they still have money when they're 95 years old. And then when you see people not make it, I, I've stepped back professionally and thought, geez, am I doing something wrong? Am I encouraging people to be too diligent and save too much? And again, I, I think there really is a fine balance. And um, in recent years. You know, I'm I'm 44 years old, and and I find myself trying to to get a little bit more balance, whether it's time for my kids or vacation or whatever it is, even if it's to my own retirement savings detriment. You know, it, it can't all be about budgeting and and saving and cutting corners, and you need to have balance. And you know, thankfully, I've I've learned it at the midpoint of my career and and my life, and you know, certainly hope to to encourage others to do the same. It, it really is about balance. Don't don't. You know, can't focus just on saving. You need to live a little bit and try to maintain balance in your financial life. Yeah, great advice. And I think advice that anybody can and, and probably should take to heart. Jason, uh, thank you very much for uh, for your help as we kind of waded through all the uh, the ups and downs and the pitfalls and all the benefits that can come from uh, from having a healthy financial plan and, uh, and investment advisor. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure, Sid. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Now we're joined, you know, we kind of talked just before uh, we went to break about uh, maybe 4,000 steps is the new 10,000 steps. We're joined by Amanda Pollock, who's an epidemiologist and kinesiologist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. There's a new study that finds that just 4,000 steps could be enough movement to lower your risk of death. 4,000 is a lot less than the 10,000 we thought we needed. And so, Amanda, this new study... Uh, I got to feel like this should be seen as universal good news, no? Yeah, absolutely. So all these studies, the studies that we've produced, the studies that my colleagues have produced, we found some really interesting evidence that you don't, that 10,000 step number, it's not an all or nothing situation. So if you are at lower than 10,000 steps per day, you don't need to get to 10,000 to start seeing benefits. The benefits are going to start accruing earlier than that number. So where did the where did the ten thousand figure come from? Was that just was that you know from scientific studies? Was that just something that we came up with and said yeah sounds good? Or, or where did that come from? Originate from? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So that 10,000 steps per day goal is thought to have started in the mid-1960s, stemming from a Japanese step counting device that roughly translated to 10,000 step meter. And this has largely been the mainstream step per day goal, even though it has not been supported by scientific evidence. And it's interesting because with with the proliferation now of, I guess maybe it started with Fitbits and a lot of people have Apple Watches now and you can see people um, and there are people listening right now that at 10 or 11 o'clock at night will be just marching around their kitchen and and through their living room because they're not quite at 10,000 steps yet. People do really take this seriously. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, with the growth of technology Steps is an excellent metric when we think about promoting physical activity um, because it is, like you mentioned, just walking around your kitchen. We can incorporate steps into our daily living. So the the incorporation, the combination of the nice utilization of the step metric with wearable technology makes it really great for thinking about how we can be active throughout the day. And 10,000 steps, I, I, I actually just looked it up in advance of our conversation here. I think it, it translates roughly to about eight kilometers. That's a lot of walking for most people in the course of a day. Absolutely. It is a lot of walking. And so it's definitely, if you're not quite there, don't feel defeated or don't feel like it is that all or nothing situation. Is starting at a lower step number and increasing by, say, 500 or 1,000 steps from where you are just now, you could see meaningful health benefits. Right. So here's where it gets even more interesting because what we're saying uh, or what the, what the researchers are saying is you don't necessarily need to get to 10,000 steps today to see real health benefits. But that doesn't mean that the more you walk or the more activity you have, you won't see greater benefits. So where do the, where do the, what's the lower level where benefits start to kick in? Yeah, so uh, that is a great question. And, you know, there is really no lower level, I would say, that you start to see kick in. If you are at 2,000, getting to 3,000 is going to be beneficial. If you're at 3,000, getting to 4,000. So what we see, particularly for lower levels of activity, is there's an incremental benefit. So as you do a little bit more, you're going to see more benefit. And then, really, it just starts to level out, or you don't continue to see much additional benefit once you get to really high levels of activity. And is it different for different people, like the sex or age or maybe pre-existing conditions work into this equation as well? Like, for example, if somebody walks 5,000 steps, is every single person that does that going to get the same benefit? It's a great question. So in some of our recent research, we've actually found an interesting age difference. So in one of our studies, we looked at the risk of premature death or of all-cause mortality, and we showed that where um, the leveling, where we saw there was no much additional benefit, it actually was different for older versus younger adults. So for example, for younger adults less than 60 years old, the leveling of benefit happened at about eight to 10,000 steps per day versus those who are older is the leveling happened about six to 8,000 steps per day. So in other words, older adults seem to need less number of steps per day to have a similar reduction in risk for mortality. And when we, when we talk about benefits, is it all cardiovascular or what sort of benefits uh, do we really mean when we say if, if, you, if you start walking more, you will see benefits? 
So benefits in terms of from being physically active, it can have benefits on nearly every cell in the body. And so that's why we see that physical activity such as walking can benefit things like our heart, our lungs, our muscles, um, reduces our risk of cancer, and can improve our mental health. So all of these various things, physical activity works on so many mechanisms in the body, which is why it's such a great activity to participate in, or it's such a great behavior to participate in. And mental health is, is a great point, because I think people that are more active do just feel better about themselves and, uh, and about what they've accomplished. And, and it's interesting, because sometimes I wondered if that 10,000-step threshold that we just sort of always heard about might have been for some people a bit of a barrier to say, well, you know, what's the point if I know I'm realistically not going to be able to consistently get to that many steps, but now they can look at it and say, anything is better than nothing. Yes, absolutely. That is the takeaway message from much of this research is anything is better than nothing. And to start where you are and to make those incremental improvements and you will see improvements in your health. So don't feel defeated if that seems like a insurmountable goal, that 10,000, because you don't need to get at 10,000 to see those benefits. My name is Sid Smith, and our guest is Amanda Pollack, kinesiologist with the University of Massachusetts Amherst. A new study uh, finds that just 4,000 steps could be enough movement to lower your risk of death. The analysis was published uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology. It pooled the results of 17 studies that examined the health benefits associated with step counts across six different countries. And it found that people who averaged around 4,000 steps a day still saw a reduced risk of death from any cause. So encouraging news if you thought you had to get to those 10,000 steps. That still has great benefits, uh, but maybe you don't have to be that ambitious every day. Uh, so Amanda, it, we, we talked a lot about walking and we focused on walking. It makes sense. It's We know it's low impact. We know there's great health benefits. We know walking is accessible to a great number of people. But, it, you know, when we talk about the, the benefits, is walking on its, its own island or when we talk about 4,000 steps, is, is there anything that we can sort of compare that to it with equivalent activity? Yeah, so we know from previous, from lots of previous research that um, any physical activity, whether it's biking, whether it's doing some type of recreational sport activity, um, all of those various activities are somewhat equivalent. If we're getting our heart rate up, if we're moving our, our, our muscles, um, so all of those have similar benefits. And we know that for the current recommendations, that it's about 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity per week is the current public health recommendations. And so this can be done in any way that you enjoy that works best for you. So if walking is not what your preference, then this could be done through any activity that you find favorable. Uh, and as we, we go through things like this and we ponder it, uh, you know, the question springs to mind if, you know, walking is something that is accessible to, uh, you know, a great number of people, uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, especially if we're now saying if you, you know, if you didn't walk anything normally and now you're up to 2,000 or 3,000 steps and you can gradually increase that to, you know, to four to five, or maybe, maybe some days you do get to eight or 10,000 steps. Why are not more of us doing that? Why do we still have uh, in North America and in other countries around the world this problem with sedentary lifestyles, obesity, and it, 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 all the studies you look at, it doesn't really seem to be getting better. 
you know, that is that is a major challenge, I think, in public health is how do we find ways to get people more active? And I think we have a lot of challenges in our daily life, our work, our um, our family life, all of those things, they might require sitting. And we know that with even though technology can be so beneficial, like these wearable technology, oftentimes a lot of our technology encourages a sedentary behavior. So at work, we're sitting a lot. Um, there's so many things we can do with tablets or te- televisions or all of these things that can encourage being physically active. Um, and a lot of our chores have become easier, as you can think about, over the past say, 50 years, uh, where we don't need to be doing as much. We're not on our feet as much. And so we have a lot of conflicting um, scenarios where it becomes easier. The sedentary choice is the easier choice. So what we need to think about is how can we make physical activity become the easier choice for more of us? You know, one thing I I think personally for people that maybe have uh, a little bit more of a competitive bent to their nature, you talked about the new technology. When you can link your device, your watch, your, I'm I'm assuming Fitbit and and the Android technologies do the same thing, to a group of friends or or, or family, and, you know, you may be thinking, well, I'm really tired and I don't want to go for a walk today or I don't want to go for a bike ride today, but then you see that your friend just went for an hour-long bike ride. It could be kind of motivating to see what other people are doing as well and kind of, you know, be that nudge that maybe you need to get out there and, and, and be active yourself. Absolutely. We know that social support and even that kind of that competitive nature can be very beneficial. And so having that tracking, thinking about it on a daily basis, socializing with other people, and then bringing in that slight little edge of competition can be really beneficial when we're thinking about getting in just a few more steps. And so what advice, so if there were people that were maybe, you know, not being as active as they even want to be, and, and we know all those environmental things that you brought up, they're absolutely mm-hmm. valid. People are stressed, people have work, people have families, and even though technology has advanced, none of us seem to be any less busy than we were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But what, what one thing or what piece of advice, if there is one thing, would you give to just kind of nudge people to start being a little bit more active, uh, knowing all the benefits that will look, they will look crew from it? So my one piece of advice is to first just find one opportunity in your day to make your behavior a walking behavior instead of a sitting behavior. So perhaps it is if you are waiting for your kids to finish up soccer practice, instead of waiting in the car, get out and do a few laps around the field. Or perhaps you have a meeting See if you can do a walking meeting instead of a sitting meeting. So find maybe it's a time that you could, you're not going to have to fit it into your busy schedule. You're just going to replace walking with sitting. So I think that would be one trick to maybe try um, that you could easily try to implement as, as a key to thinking about getting more steps per day. Well, great advice, and uh, as we've been detailing from this uh, new research, now we know that a little bit uh, can go a long way in terms of uh, the physical and mental health benefits from just getting out and, and maybe just going for a walk around the block when you've got a break between meetings. Amanda, thanks very much for your time. We do appreciate it tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Robbie Robertson, the guitarist and Songwriter for the band has died at the age of 80. The Canadian-American group, uh, best known 
I mean, there's such a great catalog, but best known for songs including The Wait and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. We just heard up on Cripple Creek. Mike Drolet now with more on his life and legacy. It's hard to take a single snapshot from Robbie Robertson's career. If there was one, sure, it would be from The Last Waltz, the band's epic Martin Scorsese-directed farewell concert. But he didn't start out there. There were the years in the Hawks, Ronnie Hawkins' backup band, before Bob Dylan poached them. To help lead his electric revolution away from folk. Well, it taught me to duck because people were booing and throwing stuff at us. But before all that, he was a musical prodigy growing up in Toronto. And while he embraced his mother's Mohawk heritage later in his solo career, there was a stigma to being Indigenous in the 1950s and 60s. Advice that I got when I was very young was, be proud that you're an Indian, but be careful who you tell. As a band, it took time for Robertson and the other Hawks to figure out their identity. The band was really without peer. They were probably the best ever backing band anybody had ever hired. And then they went on to do the, their own thing, and they were great at doing that, too. It wasn't until Dylan was sidelined by a motorcycle accident in 1966 that they set out on their own. As a result, the band, 80% Canadian dudes, led by a guy from Six Nations, uh, turned into one of the most important and most influential bands of the late 1960s and early 1970s. I've said before, this wasn't a group that had a cute singer with a shirt off and a guitar player and some other guys playing behind them. This was a group that everybody did something so extraordinary that we were all impressed with one another. Robertson never said it, but he carried the burden of leading the band, along the way becoming one of the greatest Canadian songwriters of his era. Mike Drolet, Global News, Toronto. And to continue our conversation on the life and legacy of Robbie Robertson, who passed today at the age of 80, we're joined now by Terrell Listen, who's the host and writer of the podcast, The Band, A History. A welcome to the program, uh, and thanks for taking the time this evening. No, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, definitely a rough day today, but uh, very glad to uh, have the chance to come on and talk to you about uh, Robbie and the band. And, you know, the band and, and Robbie Robertson, you know, I'm of that age uh, where... But it, it was also often, I think, uh, for some people, an artist in a group that we didn't think of all the time. When 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 a song right. came on, or when or when someone you know uh, prodded us, we kind of sit back and go, "Yeah, wow!" Like Robbie Robertson mm-hmm. and the band. But that's not the case for you. I mean, you've devoted uh, years now to a podcast, uh, chronicling mm-hmm. and celebrating uh, this music and, and, and this band. So I'm really curious as to. What went through your mind? I know you posted a new podcast today when word came out, but but what were you feeling when you heard the news today? Yeah, I'm much like you. You know, I, I'm I, these guys were kind of the soundtrack of my life, whether or not I knew it at the time when I was a kid, hearing it on the radio. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of got into my early 20s where I kind of was really turned on to them. And I've just become obsessed, really, um, as a musician as a filmmaker who watched The Last Waltz when I was in film school, um, I was really taken by these guys. I was proud that, you know, four of them were Canadian. That was really interesting to me. And, you know, Robbie was 
you know, one of these guys that was really a genius. He, he was really one of a kind. Um, so when I heard of his passing today, it was, it was really sad. Um, you know, 80 is, is a good age. He lived a very full and fruitful life, but he was so vital. Um, he was so energetic. Uh, so to see something like this today was, you know, quite shocking. Um, I think for me and, and a lot of band fans out there who um, really idolize him, look up to him in, in multiple different ways. And so when you think of him, will you, will you think more of the songwriting, of, of the guitar playing, of uh, mm-hmm. some of the sort of the groundbreaking uh, things that the, the band and, and, and Robertson in particular were able to accomplish in the, in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I really, I do think of him as part of the group. You know, the band was a very special and unique thing that really was always on the cutting edge, as mentioned, whether it was with Dylan going electric or really kind of grounding the sound in the 60s again, when there was definitely mania around psychedelia music, they brought the roots back to it. Um, and, you know, everybody wanted to be in the band, everybody changed their sound. Uh, and, and that was driven in large part by Robbie and, and everybody else in the band, right? They had their own way of, of going about it. I also think it's worth noting that, like, Robbie was an individual that represented a lot in, in a primarily uh, white industry. You know, he, he was a guy of, of mixed heritage, of indigenous Jewish heritage. And I think that was very unique. And that came out in, in the songwriting um, and I think he's a really underrated guitar player. You know, lots is talking, uh, a lot is said about his, his songwriting prowess. And obviously, you know, with songs like The Wait and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. But, you know, he started as a guitar player. Uh, his simplistic, economical playing, I think, really inspired a generation. Uh, it really put pause to the whole guitar hero shredding of solos thing and being like, listen, like, you don't have to do that. You can be mm-hmm. part of a band. You can just play for the song. And uh, I think Robbie was kind of, you know, one of the guys that reminded a lot of people of that after kind of the guitar mania of the, the early to mid-60s. You know, it's interesting in hearing you talk about him in that way. We, did, we were talking yesterday on the program about why all pop music uh, all kind of sounds the same these days and yeah. uh, why people are then, and corporations are buying up these older catalogs of people who they think have the staying power. And I didn't think of it at the time yesterday, but as soon as I heard the news today, I said, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're missing is this kind of musicianship and people are there in it for a certain reason. Yeah, I think so. And there's, there's a timelessness about the band. Like, think about when a lot of their hits came out. They came out in the late 60s, and people said during that era, as they do now, there's a timeless quality about it. It could be the 1860s. We could be, you know, transported back to the Civil War era period or, you know, the frontiers of discovering America and, you know, the northern forests of, of, of Canada. And that was then. And you can still throw on a song like The Wade around the campfire. And it kind of feels that it could be recorded today in a room with friends. And that kind of timeless songwriting quality, uh, it's a skill, but, you know, it will transcend. So, you know, as the members of the band pass away, sadly, leaving only Darth Hudson of the original lineup um, with us, um, you know, we I think we can feel good that this music will continue to live on. I'm 28 myself. Um, I will show this to my kids when I have kids and hopefully they show it to their kids as well. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that's really the ultimate testament of, of great songwriting and, and kind of timeless music. And so I'm curious, at, at 28 years old, and I guess you would have mm-hmm. been 23 or 4 when you started 
the podcast devoted to the band. Yeah. What what brought you to that? You know, I, I that's a great question. Thanks for asking. It's, you know, I think you hear a lot about Robbie. You hear a lot about Levon. They were two larger-than-life characters. Um, mm-hmm. We have great films out there like The Last Waltz. Uh, Robbie wrote a book called Testimony. Levon had one called uh, This Wheel's on Fire. And, you know, there's a couple other great guys in the band, Garth Hudson, who, who's still with us, Richard Manuel, who sadly passed away in the 80s, and Rick Danko in 1999. And I really wanted to explore all of these guys as, as they were really this interesting unit. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of fans out there who have heard the Beatles, who have heard the Rolling Stones that like this kind of music, maybe the Grateful Dead. They might not know the band. They might know the weight. Um, let's get into the podcast space. Let's get into the audio space, put together uh, a podcast for, for folks like that. And that's been the best part about this, like really turning new folks onto the band um, and rekindling some of that love that uh, people had uh, that maybe are older, maybe saw them uh, in the sixties or seventies. And like, I haven't thought about the band in a little bit. Thank you. Uh, you know, I found your podcast. Mm. Uh, that's been kind of the most rewarding thing. It's just a hobby for me. So it's, it's something that I put a lot of passion into, but Ultimately, when I get those comments or that or that feedback where people send me a story about, you know, how them and their, you know, their mom or their dad used to listen to a band cassette driving up to their cottage in the summer like that. That's really what is rewarding for me. Has anything surprised you since you've started to to research and write about uh, Robertson or about the band? Yeah, for sure. There's there's been there's been lots. I, I think the main thing is the kind of the influence they had well um you know in popular music they don't necessarily stack up to their peers like bob dylan or the bowling stones or the beatles they had a profound influence on all of the biggest names of an era eric clapton famously quit cream after he heard music Mm -hmm. from big pink um george harrison kind of went back to the Beatles and was like, guys, we kind of have to move on from this whole Sergeant Pepper type thing. We got to get back to the basics. And he wrote a lot of songs that would end up being on those later Beatle albums and then onto his, his first solo album, All Things Must Pass. Um, you know, the Kinks have talked about the kind of the role of, of the band and Robbie Robertson, all of these great acts that really kind of we think of as, um, you know, pinnacles of, of rock music, which they are. Uh, all had that moment with especially those first two band albums. And uh, I think these guys were really revered and respected. And I think they found it a little funny just being guys that want to make good music up in the, the, the Catskill Mountains. So, um, you know, I think that's been the most interesting thing, seeing how many people have been touched by this music, both from a musician standpoint uh, and, and some of their peers in the industry at the time. And you're going to continue your work chronicling the band? Definitely going to continue chronicling my work. You know, a lot of folks know the period from the mid-60s to 1976 when um, the last waltz happened. Um, I'm currently in 1980 going through their solo efforts before uh, the band minus Robbie uh, reconvened in 1983 and continued till 1999. And I'll I'll keep on going. I want to definitely touch on everything all the way up until, um, you know, the passing of all the members and uh, make sure I, I can chart everything and talk to as many people as I can because we're, we're losing a lot of people that were around in this era that had stories that have great things to tell us, and I'm doing my best to document it and try to capture as much as I can before, uh, before some of these folks pass. 
Well, it's certainly a tough day for a lot of uh, music fans today, but, uh, but but even more so for someone who's devoted uh, so much time and effort into uh, chronicling and uh, and celebrating uh, the music of Robbie Robertson and the band. So we thank you for taking some and spending some time with us tonight. Uh, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, uh, definitely a tough day, but um, you know, we still have the music. We always have the music. That we do. Thank you. Thank you again.